0: 0818 715 815. Hello, good afternoon and you're very Welcome to Liveline.
1: Grateful for all advertising on Liveline, but will someone tell PhoneWatch, you heard the ad there during the ad break. Uh, they say the firemen will be arriving this evening. Uh, there are an awful lot of fire women in Ireland now and first responders who are women. So if they could just change that word to firefighters, covers everybody. Um, and firemen get annoyed when they hear the generic phrase because they know there's a significant and really uh, equal part of their organisation that is now comprised and has been for a long time, both on the front line and behind the scenes as our uh, women. Just a, just a small point. Now, it's yesterday week. Um, when the word fesh fixing first appeared on Liveline. We've now been contacted by Ronan McCormick. Ronan is currently based in the United States of America. And if you remember River Dance in uh, 1994 in the then Point Depot in Dublin, the I think the final four uh, dancers, uh, Jean, Michael, and then to the left of Michael, as we look, was uh, Ronan McCormack. Ronan, tell us first of all, of your involvement in Irish dancing.
2: Um, Well, I started dancing around the age of three. um, And so I've been involved in it all my life since. Um, I was a competitive dancer when I was younger. Then, as you've mentioned, in 1994, I was part of the original Riverdance. And that kind of opened up an opportunity for competitive dancers to pursue Irish dance as a career. Prior to that, it really wasn't an option in Ireland. Um, and so I subsequently toured with, with the show. Yeah. And when I, when I stopped touring, I then qualified as an Irish dance teacher. And a couple of years later, I um, took the adjudicator's exam and qualified as an adjudicator. So I've been adjudicating now for just 19 years.
1: Wow. Nineteen years. Well, that's that's an incredible yeah. uh, pedigree. So, what prompted yeah. you've written us a long email, a lot of a lot of uh, which at this stage we can't broadcast, but we we obviously hope to at some stage. Uh, but why did you put pen to paper and decide to, as an adjudicator, you're the first adjudicator we've actually heard from. Why have you decided, so to speak, to break ranks and put your head above the parapet on this fish-fixing allegations?
2: Um, I think it's, it's something the, 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 the idea of fixing is definitely something I've been aware of for a lot of my dancing life, even as a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at times it was, it, it was kind of just hearsay, oh, you know, so-and-so said this or did this, and therefore they gave them the mark, you know. So uh, from a very young age, I've kind of been aware that something like this was going on. Okay, And um, I suppose... In, in this current situation when all of this came to light, I, I really felt the organisation the organization needs to change, and there certainly won't be another opportunity, I don't think, to call for that change, because we now have the eyes of the world on this um, issue. So that's, that's really what prompted me. It's something I felt very strongly about for a long time. It's something I have tried to bring up and mm-hmm. to have dealt with in the past, but this this just seemed to me to be the perfect opportunity to to call for change. And unfortunately, um, while those of us who are registered members were made aware of this situation a few weeks ago, um, the the statement actually that you read out on there last week, we were sent that, I don't know, about two weeks before that. Okay. Um, In the past week when I saw the subsequent statement sent to registered members that basically doubled down, don't say anything, refer them back to our statement, that really incensed me because I thought, you know... There, there are senior members in this organisation that are in a position to do something about this. And to me, it seems like there was a little bit of ostrich syndrome going, down, uh, going, on, going on, like bury the head and hope to God it goes away. So I, that's why I really felt mm-hmm. uh, um, pushed to write and call for change.
1: And how long are you aware of allegations that the CLRG themselves described, they described them as gross misconduct, grossly unethical behaviour and gro- grievous breaches of their code of conduct? How long would you have been aware or, uh, of that carry-on?
2: Um, I mean, in that statement, uh, my understanding is they're referring to the the text messages that have been very, very much discussed over the past week or so. Yeah. Um, so I, would, I only became aware of, aware of those messages literally two weeks ago when everybody else, you know, all other registered members or whatever, started to become aware of it. That was the first time I was aware of that particular instance. But over, over the years, as I say, I have been aware that not everybody who sits down to adjudicate a competition does so with integrity, and not everybody is, gives fair consideration to the dancers on the day. Um so
1: it's, you, something,
2: it's something. Yes, I would have been aware of.
1: And were you? Were I just, given that you mentioned that you mentioned the ostrich syndrome, um, were you aware that the, that the uh, CRLG on yesterday week when we forced approached them with these approach them with these allegations, um, they sent us in a statement. Please do not discuss this on air.
2: They,
3: I, did, mean, they, I heard you.
2: I heard you say that. I was listening to the show, and again that incensed me because I'm like, okay, this is in the public. You need to deal with this. You are the most senior governing body for Irish dancing. It is your remit to promote and foster a love of Irish dancing culture. And refusing to discuss this at any level is just not on. Right. And I mean, I'm aware that they have initiated an investigation. But having spoken to colleagues over the past two weeks, there, there seems to be what I believe is a little misnomer out there. that. This is almost like a, you know, a government tribunal. This is very much an investigation that has been set up by the organisation. And I I don't in any way mean to question the integrity of whoever the retired judge is that they've appointed. But let's be be real here. This investigation is set up by the organisation for the organisation. It is certainly not what should be considered an independent investigation. And as I say, I'm not questioning the integrity of the judge. Of course not. But are
1: are you calling for an independent investigation?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And who should
1: should initiate and appoint the investigators?
2: um, Well, I've read quotes from the Minister for Arts and Culture talking about the situation. And so I suppose in terms of Ireland and Irish dance, that's kind of a head job, the Minister for Arts and Culture. So I think that would be an appropriate department for that call to come from and possibly to somehow and help oversee that independent investigation. I, I also feel if something was done and, and genuinely independent, there's a better chance that, that people involved will come...
1: OK, there's a line gone, unfortunately. Uh, it's gone blank on the screen. The statement again from the CRLG, the one-line statement we got yesterday week, or Monday week, sorry, it's now The matter is, unact- uh, is under active investigation and no comment will be made until that is complete. To avoid any prejudice, we would ask you not to air the matter at this time. Uh, Ronan is back, is back uh, on the line from the States. As as an adjudicator, Ronan, and you now the, the Minister might say, when well, you say the Minister surely has a role, we don't, it, it is, it is, they do call themselves an commission, but it's not a government. It's an independent company, um, and they don't get any direct state money.
2: Oh, absolutely, Joe. Um, I mean, I think I'd like to refer to the, the foundation of the organisation, which was originally set up by Colin and Aguilge, okay. which in turn was originally set up, um, I believe, around the time of the foundation. Well, actually, before the foundation of
1: the Yeah, state, exactly. Um, yeah.
2: and Aguilga been around from the late 1800s. Um, so there was that, that connectivity years ago. And from my understanding, when, when On Commission was set up, the board, which was a small group of people like this would be in any business or corporation, um, the board had representation not only from Irish dance teachers, adjudicators, but it also had representation from other aspects of Irish culture um, and Irish life. And I suppose, like any board, um, the, the, the desire would be to have a variety in the makeup of the board to to, to bring that sort of sense of fairness to things. Unfortunately, over the year, over the years I should say, the board has been expanded and expanded and expanded, and there's, there's over 100 people who are considered quote-unquote on the board, which is actually ridiculous. I, I personally served on the board from 2006 to 2008, okay. and it was a real eye-opener for me, having been involved all my life, but not really understanding the inner workings, and you know, if you're, if when you're at a board, a board meeting, not a membership meeting, but a board meeting with 100 people plus, very little actually gets done. Um, because, A, if everybody was to, to talk and share, their yeah. you would be there for weeks on end just on one topic. Um, unfortunately, from my experience there, it was the same people who were proactive in trying to do things. It was the same people who were proactive in trying to stifle change. And there was a rather large group of people who did nothing. They just went for the weekend away, which was really not beneficial. So that's why, in, in many ways, I'm calling for change from the top of the organisation, because I think that's what needs to happen. Um, you so, know, uh, the, the old expression, a fish rots from the head, um, I think it's so kind of a hundred, here. In so, that there's,
1: so there's 100 people on the board. And where
2: Where do you... Uh, yeah, I where think where over did, 100 uh, people at this stage.
1: Sure, sure. Google, Amazon doesn't have 100 people on the board, the biggest companies in the world. Where do the board meetings take place?
2: So, pre COVID, the board meetings would all take place in, in Ireland. There would have been, back when I served on the board, I think it was eight meetings a year. That was then reduced to six meetings a year because of the considerable expense of bringing people from all over the world together um, for those meetings. Obviously, then during COVID, that wasn't possible. So, well, um, well, what I mean? Were the board meetings, meetings a day, day long?
1: Were they in a hotel? Were they a weekend? What were they?
2: So, yeah, so the meetings would generally be, um, the regular meetings would generally be two days, possibly. Some committees might start on a Friday evening, um, or if not, they might just meet throughout the day on Saturday, and then the full meeting of the board would happen on a Sunday and last from nine to five or six. Um, so they would they would generally happen in a, in a hotel location. Then the annual general meeting, which would happen once a year, obviously, is um, mm-hmm. that would be a two- or three-day meeting, um, again, in, in the hotel situation. And then one day would be outgoing members to do, kind of finish off the year, discuss, you know, business that mm-hmm in process. And then the second full day would be with any newly elected members involved and with business kind of looking more towards the future of the year.
1: And was FESH fixing ever brought up in any shape or form at the meetings that you were aware
2: of? um, Do you know, to to be honest at this stage, I I can't 100% say it was. I am aware it has been brought up over the years um, and there have been instances that have been, and I, and I use the term, um, somewhat loosely dealt with over the years. Um, and unfortunately, from my perspective, this is just my own personal opinion, um, when the issues I'm aware of that were dealt with were dealt with, I don't feel that the, um, the punishment for what's better description was adequate. And as such kind of sent a reinforcing message to people, if you want to cheat, you'll probably get away with it. And so that in itself hasn't helped.
1: Over the years. And is that one of the reasons why you say, while in your email, while I welcome the initiation? of an investigation into the fixing of FESH results, I call on the organisation to suspend all adjudicators implica- implicated in the text message evidence without prejudice for the duration of the investigation, which you want to be independent of the organisation, and to also set aside the right to adjudicate any other registered member subsequently identified with supporting evidence during the investigation. Um, you, you believe anyone implicated at this stage should stand aside? Until it's... I
2: do. I mean, I've heard, I've heard a lot of talk of people calling for competitions to be cancelled, etc. And as, as a teacher, as an active teacher, I don't think that's the answer. I have a lot of students who have worked very hard okay. since their summer break with a view to the upcoming regional the that will happen, you know, over the month of November in different parts of the world. And, you know, I don't see why their hard work should go in vain because of this issue. However, I really feel they need to be given the fairest shot when they put themselves on stage to compete. And so that's why I'm calling for the suspension of anybody who has been implicated with tangible evidence, not just hearsay, yeah. to, be, to have their, their right to adjudicate suspended without prejudice. It's not a judgment of guilt until such time as I feel the independent um, investigation has completed. At that stage... Anybody mm-hmm. who was found guilty of these um, fetch-fixing allegations, then, yes, there should be serious repercussions and sanctions for them from the organization, whether that's a lifetime ban, whether it's a, you know, a five-year ban and telling them they must reset the adjudicated exam after that. I don't know. That's, I don't think that's for me to legislate. But I do think um, in doing that, it might help restore a little bit of confidence in the dancers, the parents, and the teachers who are very honest and put forth their competitors in good faith. I think that would, it would help restore a little bit of confidence in the interim until the investigation is finished. And, and likewise, anybody who was vindicated at the end of the exhibition, that should be publicly stated, and their, their ability to adjudicate if they're so qualified, reinstored, to be okay. fair. I mean, I very much believe in, in innocence of so proven guilty, however we have seen what appears to be tangible evidence of this. It's not just idle gossip. Hmm. And, you know, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm calling for a little bit more substantial action in the interim pending that independent investigation.
1: And in the, in their original uh, email, which I read out um, on Monday week, uh, they say, such uneth-, this is the CLRG, such unethical behaviour cannot and will not be tolerated uh, by this organisation. So they're accepting the, 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 the bona fides, it seems, of the people who are making the uh, allegations. That's that's what they say. Well, and there's but, the, the evidence apparently dates back to, so I'm quoting it, several years and identifies individuals allegedly offering various inducements to promote dancers who are higher than deserved placing a particular competition. Um, now... D- d- how, well, unfortunately, you, yeah, but Joe, so, I feel
2: their statement of you know, this, this, this behaviour won't be tolerated kind of rings hollow. My understanding is they were made aware of those current text messages that are doing the rounds. They were made aware of them in July of this year, but yet some of the people implicated have judged major competitions since then. So if it was really intolerable, why were they allowed to continue judge pending an investigation? So I, I just feel the statement mm-hmm. rings hollow on that level.
1: And as an adjudicator, have you ever been approached, you think, unethically?
2: Um, Actually, yes, Um, and I know this might be surprising to um, people involved in in Irish dancing, but over my 19 years judging, I have literally received one text message um, asking me to to look out for a dancer. And in the particular instance, it was a competition that the the teachers voted on who would adjudicate. So adjudicators were asked to declare their, their interest in judging the competition, and then a ballot was created and the the teachers voted to pick the judges. So the message I got Uh. referred to the fact that this person had voted for me to judge, so therefore they wanted me to look after their dancer. And I was... I was shocked because obviously that was the first mm-hmm. time it happened, and it's actually, as I say, to date the only time, and I hope it's the only time. Um, but I wrote back and just said straight away, I said I'd like to think that anyone who voted for me did so knowing that I would judge this competition fairly and treat all dancers equally. Um, and, and do you think that, that to he, me was my best way of dealing with it? Yeah. As such, I didn't really have any faith that if I reported anything would be done, and that's why I figured if I put the person back in their box, hopefully. That would be a lesson to them. And the
1: word, um, the, the word obviously went around. There. Rona McCormick is not for turning. Um, absolutely. By the way, and, 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 and again, I'm very conscious uh, that these are all text messages. They're all electronic. They're there. But did you ever see any? Did you ever see anyone try to influence an, an adjudicator,
3: or have your suspicions? Um, again, it was a quite
2: quite important competition, and I was on an escalator going up to the ballroom area where the competitions were going to take place. And there was another judge a few steps ahead of me. And as they reached the top of the escalator, and yeah. um, a teacher walked by, shoved a piece of paper into their hands and kept walking. And it was literally like a drop from, a, from some sort of a movie, you know. like it's a spy um, movie. Anyway, I, I, I ran up the escalator. I tipped that judge on the shoulder and I said, that was as subtle as a sledgehammer. And they... Their, their reaction was to go very bright red and their face dropped. Now, I don't know what was on that piece of paper. I'm assuming it was some sort of information regarding dances that the person was going to adjudicate. I don't know. I do know that the person reacted and were very embarrassed when I drew attention to it. You, um,
3: see, you again, said to them... Said there was no them.
2: point in reporting that because okay. that piece of paper could just, would have disappeared. That would be my words.
1: But you did say that that was as subtle as a sledgehammer.
2: That's exactly what I said to the, to the adjudicator in question that had received a piece of paper, yes. Because it was in a very public area, yeah. <laughs> you know, in, the, in, the, in this big lobby of a hotel on an escalator. I was like, "Geez, that's brazen. Um, but yeah. And
1: what, what was the atmosphere? Because we discovered as well last week that um, adjudicators, um, teachers um, and contestants are all, can all normally be in the same hotel for these weekends. What's the
2: atmosphere?
1: in these, these so, hotels?
2: So I, I think something that, that's important to note that I haven't actually heard discussed um, is that, that there is a social aspect to yeah. the world of Irish dancing. And I suppose, take me for instance, I grew up in Ireland. I competed at international level all through my childhood. So I had friends from around the world who I would see maybe twice a year at these big competitions. And okay. we're talking about back in the day where you had to write a letter to keep in touch or, you know, drop yeah, the yeah. drop the and pieces and, and press button an A on the payphone. Yeah. Um, so, so it was something we look forward to as dancers with meeting up with our friends and competitors from around the world. Likewise, the teachers got to meet up with their colleagues. I, I, I skip forward to today. A lot of my teacher and adjudicator colleagues are people who I would have either danced in mm-hmm. class with or competed against. And so when it comes to these bigger international competitions, for me, it's, 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 lovely, it's a lovely opportunity to catch up with people who I might not have seen, okay. especially over the last few years when people didn't see anyone except on Zoom. And, um, you know, so there is that social aspect of it. I fully understand when people walk into a hotel lobby and there's a judge for the event talking to a teacher who is student, that does not look good. And I fully understand that. However... That's somebody having a conversation in public. It's not a text message. And while, yes, it would look better if the judges were sequestered and didn't mix, et cetera, I totally mm. understand that. Um, it's, it, unfortunately, it's not going to deal with the problem at hand. Because uh, from my understanding and from what I've seen of those text messages, et cetera, this is all stuff that goes on before the competition. It, it's nothing to do with the social aspect of it. It okay. goes on. In, in private. You know, it's a text message. Somebody could be anywhere in the world and receive that information. So while, while I think, yes, it would look better, I really don't think it's going to have an impact on, on the situation at hand. And I also would like to say that I have a lot of judging colleagues that I believe have great integrity and sit down to adjudicate fairly and give every dancer their due consideration on the day. You know, I, I, I really would like to believe that that the people who are doing this fresh fixing are in the minority. And to some extent, I believe there's a clique, and that's why word went round fast. I wasn't going to be susceptible to it. And so the people who are susceptible to it kind of know who each other are, and they're in a Mm clique to do that. You know, I really don't think it's the majority of, of judges. That's that's my that's my personal. Of
1: course feeling. not, Jim. Yeah, I sincerely, I sincerely hope not. I are you are you not worried, Ronan, as a, a judge, uh, a senior judge now for nearly two decades? Are you not worried that by raising your head like this, that you're going to quietly suffer? You might be dropped, or you might not be included, or.
2: You know what, Joe? I I can't legislate for what other people will do, and. Um, But it's important to me to speak up and stand up for what i believe is right i kind of have a a mantra in life when you see something wrong you know say it loud and say it soon and try and try and make it better um and so to that end the, the person i am i have to say it i just have to speak up and say it and as i said earlier this i believe is is the best opportunity i'm ever going to have to stand up and say this because people are paying attention and hopefully Enough people are paying attention that it will bring about change, um, even if that has to come from embarrassing people into doing the right thing. Whatever it takes to get, to get improvement on this and to, and to stamp it out. Um, and so, yes, I'm aware there could be repercussions, but that was why it was important to me to. I, I mean, I wrote to all the registered members yeah, in yeah. regard to this because I figured if, if enough people are incensed about this, which I believe they are, and are now willing to speak up, there will be change. Where if, if you whisper in the hope for change, that's never going to come. So,
1: and do you believe change can come? I know it's
2: a risk, but uh, I, I, I felt I, it was worth
1: it. Okay, but do, do you believe the, the, the hundred members of the board, there's a hundred of them, um, is there any evidence that they can initiate change?
2: Well, they absolutely can, um, Joe, because they're the people who vote on rule changes, okay. um, on establishing criteria for organizing competitions, for, for for every aspect of how competitive Irish dance works. They are the people who legislate. Um, and so if if they can't – oh, no, sorry. I believe they can. If they refuse to bring about change, well, then maybe it's time for the organization to go. I don't want it to go.
3: Mm-hmm. It
2: has a long history. and um, of promoting Irish dance, and I don't want to see the baby thrown out with the bathwater here. However, it it needs to be, you know, there needs to be changed, and those people who sit on the board and attend those meetings, they're the people who have the power to make that change. We can call for it, but they're the people who have the power to make Mm -hmm. the change. And I would also say, both from my time on the board for the couple of years, and a lot of the same people are still um, on the board, um, there are a lot of very well-meaning, good people, of course, yeah. in my opinion, on that board. However, some of them are not, I'm sure were not aware of the extent of what was going on. Some of them, I would not say, I'd say most of them were aware of some degree of it. Some of them were probably unaware. And they also, there also is this fear thing that if they speak up, they'll be somewhat ostracized or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think something maybe that hasn't been touched on is, is just the basic human nature element of this. You know, and, and, and I'm in no way condoning the fetch fixing. But, I mean, I think, you know, it can happen at a football match if a ref knows someone and calls a ball that's questionable mm-hmm. in favor of the person they know instead of not, you know. The, I, I think it's just the basic human, human nature element that people are not infallible. Um, it doesn't make it right. But I do feel if enough people stand up and say, no, we're not accepting this, then then there is hope for change.
1: So you've sent it to all registered members uh, of the organisation. How many, how many is that, Ronan? Um,
2: my understanding is that it's around 2,000. And just okay. a disclaimer to any of them who are listening who didn't receive it, um, in the process of trying to do that, my email account told me I'd reached a daily limit.
3: And okay. so I ended
2: up sending messages from three different email accounts, and, 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 and on, on each one, I got shut down for reaching my daily limit. So if anyone didn't receive it, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. Okay. It wasn't that I didn't try. I, I genuinely wanted to try to reach everybody. And I, from what I gather at this stage, um, it, it has been posted um, in various places on social media, et mm-hmm. so I'm sure a lot of people... If they, even if they didn't receive it, have have seen us. I didn't post it on any social media. I am actually not on any social media. But colleagues have told me well, they've okay. seen it on social
1: media. for so that. But some of the alleg- some of the allegations, and I don't want you to repeat them, obviously. But some of the allegations you make in the email are extraordinarily serious. Yes. Extraordinary. Okay. And you're willing to stand over them yeah. if if another, maybe another Absol- organisation would publish them and. Uh, But anyway, you say, I'm calling on all elected co-opted members of the CLRG aware of these transgressions, whether previously or just now, to ensure the removal of any offenders from their officer positions, stroke senior roles, should they not voluntarily resign and to ensure that they are sanctioned appropriately. For any and all transgressions, have you any? Have, when you say I'm calling, and has there been, do you know, a meeting of the hundred-person board since these, since last Monday week, for
2: example? No, my, 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 well, I don't, I honestly don't know. My, my understanding is the last official full meeting was the weekend of September 24th. And it was the Monday after that that we, as registered members, were sent out that statement. Ah, okay. And to my knowledge, that's the last full meeting. Now, I, I am aware that, um, over the course of the year, the Council of Management would have more meetings and then even independent committees would have. Their own meeting, you know, standalone meetings to prepare mm. stuff to bring to general meetings. So there could have been some committee meetings, since I, not that I'm aware of. Um, but I, and that's like I, I, I'm calling on the the people, the people who who are implicated know themselves who they are. I'm calling on them to resign and do the right thing. Even though they no, not be yeah, in the in, in, in of power in, in fairness, that they're in.
1: What about a what about a person who's been wrongly implicated?
2: Um. Well, well. first of all, I mean, you've, referenced, you've referenced what I've written. I yeah. haven't named anybody of course not, in that no. letter.
1: And neither can you. As
2: I say, it should be clear to the people involved who I'm referring to. And um, I haven't named them because I want to give them the opportunity to do the right thing. As far as the text message thing is concerned, I, I would imagine you've seen what I've seen as far as screenshots go. Yeah. There are names on those screenshots. I'm also fully cognizant of the fact that with modern technology, that, that is somewhat fakeable. And that's why I say it needs to go to an independent
3: okay, investigation. Points, yeah.
2: And the veracity of, those, of that evidence needs to be ascertained. Um, I know on the, the various message boards, people are bandying names around left, right and centre. Yeah, okay, Personally, yeah. I don't think that's fair. And, that's and fair. Subsequent to me sending that letter and somebody published on a message board, there have been negative things and positive things said about me. My statement to those people would be, I put my name to my letter. I stood up Mm -hmm. and put my name to that. So anybody who wants to make accusations about me or any of my colleagues anonymously, put your name to it and we'll take it seriously. Until then, it's idle gossip. And there it is.
1: And what responses has Rowan and McCormick been getting to your email that you sent out? yesterday? a copy of which I have in my hand.
2: I've I've received quite a lot of responses by email and by text message um, from colleagues that I know well and colleagues that I absolutely have never met As I say, out of 2,000 members. I do not know everybody who's currently registered with the organization. But any of the messages that I've gotten have been very supportive. I haven't received one negative reply. Um, Some of them have been very, very, very long and in-depth replies, people sharing their experiences or just their frustrations. Um, So so I believe I do have support. Um, I hope those people in turn bring it to their regional representatives, mm-hmm. and then their regional representatives in turn bring it to the LRG, the international governing body. I mean, that's kind of the way those things should work. Um, and so if enough people say it to the regional board, then hopefully those regional representatives who've been elected to represent their membership will have the guts to bring it and demand change at the, at the senior level.
1: And what have they, you say? There's some negative things not
2: not
3: no, re- things don't, yeah. are basically
2: people commenting on anonymous um, forums online. So as far as I'm concerned, okay, they're yeah. not worth the curse if people yeah. aren't willing to put their names to us. So I, it doesn't bother mind me. Mind. I'm, I'm ticked in that respect.
1: But they're hurtful, obviously. But the, the messages, is, is it fair to say, in the overall response you're getting to this email, which you, spent, you sent out to two, over 2,000, 2000 uh, they're teachers as such aren't they Runs, run Irish yes. dancing schools is it is it fair to say that the trend would not disabuse you of the notion long held as you say that there is fesh fixing
2: oh yeah no I mean it, 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 people are people are very much acknowledging that in in their replies to me um, so it's, yeah it's I mean, widely it's widely to accepted to this.
3: yeah yeah.
1: Okay. yeah okay so so what yeah. should what should happen now should there was a call last week um, for the, the upcoming competition to be postponed, not cancelled, be postponed until clarity
2: emerges. Well, I, I mean, as, as I said there earlier, I personally um, have students who have worked very hard in preparation for their upcoming regional championships in, in November. And all regions of the world have the competition through the end, from the end of October through the beginning of December. That's the regional championships, which are the qualifying rounds for world okay. championships. And we're not just talking solo dancers here. We're talking teams, which could be teams of four, six, or eight dancers. Yeah, yeah. And they've put a lot of work in preparing for that. So I personally do not want to see those events cancelled because I think that kind of goes in the face of the, the actual dancers and the work they've put in and also the work the teachers have put in, the teachers who are above board and don't, look for favours, I think that flies in their face, so I really don't want to see that happening. Um, But that's why I said, at least if the organisation set aside the adjudicating qualifications of those implicated with tangible evidence, that at least least it's the organisation doing something concrete to ensure that the the upcoming competitions Mm -hmm. are fairer. Now, there could be people who are going to judge those that haven't been implicated, and there it is, But at least if the people who are implicated are set aside, and quite a few of the people who I've seen those messages from are scheduled to adjudicate at these competitions. So I feel they should be set aside.
3: And, and, and would at
2: least some
1: and, confidence and, in it. Well, and in, in your experience, Ron, as a member of the board, I know it's a hundred-member board, and an adjudicator, yes. and obviously a dancer before that, but an adjudicator for, and a teacher for uh, 20 years, when allegations have arisen, and you say they have arisen before, have you ever seen the uh, the organisation, CRLG, take concrete steps to address the allegations?
2: Yes, there, there, was, there was an instance um, and it was, it was basically a, a situation where uh, teachers put a letter under a hotel door with a wish list um, of placements and they, they put it under the wrong door apparently because it was received by an Irish dance family. Uh, you know, the parents yeah. of dancers found this letter under their door and um, in that particular instance, um, the teacher of the dancer who received that or the family who received the letter brought it to my attention and, and, and I'd like to think it was because I have a reputation yeah, fair, for straight it? talking and being willing to call things out. So they brought it to my attention and said, okay, you know, Roland, can I just talk to you about something and maybe get some advice? I said, absolutely. So they, they explained what had happened and obviously I was shocked. Um, and I said, "Well, okay. So here is," I said, "Here is how the structure works. I said this, this happened happens in North America, and it was uh, the, the the dancers who received this letter were from North America. The, the the teachers who had written the letter were from North America. So I said, the way it has to work and um, per structure of the organisation is you must bring that to the North American Ethics Board." They okay. in turn review it. If they see it as something that has international implication, they will refer it to I believe it's been mentioned, the Christophara, which is kind of the watchdog committee yeah, of the lrg yeah, yeah. And then they will take it up. I said, however, if they feel it's something that should be dealt with at North American level, they will deal with it. I said, if you go directly to on Christophara, you will be referred back to your North American structure work.
1: Did something come of that direct evidence of
2: well, strangely enough, the, 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 this, the person who brought my attention immediately said, well, actually, I've brought it to the North American board. Okay. I said, oh, great. And he said, well, no. He said, what I've been told is that something could be done, but there could be repercussions for the rest of my dances for the rest of the week. Now, this is something that came from a member of the Ethics right. Board, which clearly is unethical. Uh, literally at that moment, I mean, it, it, at the time I was like, Jesus, is there somebody directing this? Because a senior member of the Christopher Tafara happened to walk towards me. So I said, excuse me. I said, we need to talk. And I, th- mm-hmm. I said, this person has something to tell you. And so straight away that member said, okay, I need a copy. I said, I need the letter she said, not a copy. I don't want it said, oh, that's a photocopy. It could have been doctored. Okay, I yeah. need the letter. She said, make sure you keep copies of it for yourself, but I need the original, and something is going to get done about this. So, Joe, I actually saw the letter. You know, I, I know what was written in it, and it was very much a wish list of placements for a particular numbers, dancers, in particular competitions. Um, now, action was taken, but my understanding is the penalty that was imposed was then actually imposed by the North American Ethics Board, And it wasn't as stringent a penalty as the International Board wanted to impose. But because it was originally, because North American Ethics Board then jumped in to be seen to be fixing it, um, the the advice, I believe, the legal advice given to CNRG was you can't impose a worse penalty because that would be a case of double jeopardy. And in America, that would be challenged and you can't try somebody for the same thing twice. So that's why I understand. So so action was taken, but only kind of was pushed and pushed. You okay. know, and that's okay. why I have very little faith in this investigation that the organisation have initiated.
1: And that's why you want an independent investigation. Yeah. OK, yes. OK. Uh, Rona McCormick, uh, adjudicator for the time being, at least, um, and former Riverdance dancer and teacher and well-known and well-regarded. Uh, personage in in the whole organisation and the whole world of Irish dancing a wonderful world of excitement for young people and skill and and entertainment Uh, thanks indeed Ronan that's Ronan
0: McCormick Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815 Talk to Joe on 0818 715
1: 815 Danielle McConnell we've uh, been hearing from women for the last week and a half and the age is um one email yesterday talked about a young uh, girl of 14 her mother's convinced she has endometriosis because of the pain the excruciating pain she's going through but you were just at uh, 28 and you tell us i've just recovered or i'm recovering from my fifth endosurgery yes and where where did your journey begin this awful journey
4: Oh, God, it began, I would say, back around when I first got my periods, age 12. They were never really normal. Um, Always a lot of pain, but we just said we'd leave it and see, you know, if it settled down. Um, Around age 14 or 15, kind of vomiting and fainting started around that time as well. Um, And I was admitted to hospital a few times just, they thought it could be my appendix, different things like that. And um, stomach migraines was a, a very novel diagnosis one time as well. Stom- um, stomach
1: it, stomach migraines.
4: Yeah, so just random pains in the in the stomach like you might get similar to migraines. Um so obviously that, you know, wasn't great. Um but it was one day I was leaving hospital, I was actually checking out and I had oh. gotten my period just before I was leaving okay.
3: and I fainted
4: and thankfully a nurse put two and two together and that kind of started the journey. But eventually ended up being endometriosis diagnosed when I was 17 and um, so there was a good few years there of really going back and forth and not mm. quite knowing and pillar to post that kind of thing and um, but eventually I got an answer age 17.
1: And then when did the surgeries begin?
4: Um, so I had my first surgery age 17 in 2011 for the diagnosis um, and then in 2016 and 2017 I had further ablation surgeries here um, and after that, after the the one in 2017, I, I went back to the same person and I was still having a lot of pain. Um, and it was suggested that, you know, having a baby was the next step for me in, in the management of endometriosis. But there is no wives to that that can cure it. But that wasn't really a, a treatment option I saw possible. Um, <laughs> and certainly mm-hmm. not, not to be managed yeah. in the long term. Um, so I eventually went over to Birmingham in 2020 for an excision surgery. Um, and it was the best decision I've ever made. And that just was to explain, four,
1: yeah. the, this, the technique used here, after a lot of yeah. uh, diagnosis and, and other uh, avenues explored, the technique used here for endo was ablation, the ablation. yeah,
3: yes.
1: uh, then But the, that's more like scraping the, the, yeah, the Velcro, I, as someone described the essay, whereas you went after ablation, which didn't work, um, yes. you went for complete excision.
4: Yes, the way that I see it is the ablation is like just taking the leaves off a weed. So the leaf has kind of gone from the surface of your garden, but the roots are still growing and still causing damage. And eventually that weed will come back up. Um, So that's that's how I see it. So I had the excision surgery done in Birmingham in 2020. um, And it was quite a lengthy surgery. There was a lot done. Um mm-hmm. even the difference in recovery afterwards, you know, I, I was able to go to Ikea once after the ablation surgery that, it, mm. you know, I was fine. Um, but after the, the surgery in Birmingham, I ended up having to stay an extra night over there before I could come home. Um, and the recovery was an awful lot tougher. So it was a very different surgery, but it was the one that I needed.
1: And that made a difference.
4: It made a massive difference. Okay. It gave me a lot of my life back that I didn't realize was missing. And, and as such a young woman, you know, I didn't realize what I was missing out on. I was having to choose, you know, if I was doing something at this on one particular weekend, then I knew for the rest of the week following that, it wouldn't be good. You know, I'd be paying for it, so I would have to pick and choose what I do. Um, and, you know, even recently, I had a ticket to a concert that was a standing concert. Okay. I didn't realize it at the time when I got the ticket, so I ended up not being able to go because I just knew that if I stood for that long mm. length of time, I would either have to leave and have to go and sit down or I wouldn't be fit for anything the following couple of days. So it's, it's making those choices still in life. Um, that's the hardest part, I think.
1: And you say when, when you were suffering, you I wondered why I couldn't walk without feeling yeah. a, a pulling sensation.
4: Yeah. What, what do you mean? Um, So whenever i walk, especially if I tried to do a walk with a bit of pace, I could just feel this pulling on the inside. Um, And that was even this year. And it was so uncomfortable and so hard to describe to people. Um, And then as it turned out in my surgery, my bowel and ovary were both attached to my pelvic sidewall. Um, So I was, in fact, feeling pulling because things were being pulled. Literally. Um, Literally literally being pulled. Inside your organs were. Yeah, they were stuck together. Yeah.
1: And now, how are you now?
4: I'm great now. I'm yeah. doing a lot better. Yeah, I had kind of what I describe as nearly a top-up surgery over here, here in Ireland this year, okay. um, just to, to deal with some of that. So with every surgery, they, especially the excision technique, it can cause scar tissue um, and more adhesions to form. So it was just managing those adhesions that had grown in the meantime. Um, but I'm definitely a different person now, and I'm absolutely the better for going over to the UK for that excision surgery. It really changed my life.
1: Okay. Danielle, that's Danielle McConnell. Danielle, if you can, I know, I know you're you're working. Uh, here is just another example of yeah. two of two letters we got.
5: Hi, Joe. Thank you for covering this topic. I happen to be tuned in while having lunch, and the stories are bringing tears to my eyes. My daughter is fourteen and has been experiencing debilitating pain for well over a year. Initially, she was complaining and felt sick after eating, but was coping. She had ultrasound scans and was given painkillers and meds for IBS. Nothing worked and I suggested to the doctor it might be endometriosis but was told it was her bowel and just a matter of finding the right pain relief. So she had all sorts that didn't work. The pain was so debilitating she couldn't walk, constantly wearing a hot water bottle and crying in pain. I was tracking her period to see if I could track the pain. Her period was so irregular. I asked the doctor if we could try the contraceptive pill to at least try to regulate her period and give her back some quality of life. I asked to be referred to a gynaecologist and we're waiting for an appointment. She's been on the pill for four months now and as soon as she stops, the severe pain returns. It's heartbreaking to be so powerless, watching her suffering at the age of 13, 14 and the doctor to say she'll grow out of it. She's now 14 and I'm hoping she won't be on the pill for a long time waiting for an appointment. Kind regards, Patricia.
0: Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815.
6: Hi there. Um I'm just ringing about the show on Live Line at the moment. Um, I um I have endometriosis myself. I got endometriosis very um, in a very bad way at my first period at the age of 13. And I was told by the three doctors in the small town where I grew up that I just couldn't handle the pain and it was normal and just more or less to get on with it. Even though I would every month get really sick, vomit at school, have to take days off, I would pass out, I would hallucinate my knees would be cut from the school carpet every month. And when I was, after years, one of the doctors put me on the pill, nobody ever mentioned endometriosis to me. Um, And I just kept going with hot water bottles, painkillers, passing out, taking the days off, being able to, I had to cancel my sports things. I would have been very sporty had to cancel everything my friends were used to me canceling everything I was just fighting constantly against all of it trying to stay what I thought was normal um then when I went out into a job I was working one day in the next town over in the big it was a bigger town and I was living there and I had rang in sick and my friend came down to see was I okay at lunchtime and I was passed out on the ground hemorrhaging so they got me to hospital and they brought me to a new doctor in that town and she was the first one that said to me I think you might have endometriosis and when I looked it up online I had every single symptom of it and it had never been mentioned to be me my by my own doctors before that um, and I was 25 at this stage so that was 12 years of a very important time and losing out and um, since then like even listening to the women there you know the severe pain I've had two children I had one by cesarean and I had one naturally and I would have one naturally again no problem because it was nothing compared to the endometriosis pain i would have been bleeding for maybe 3 months at a time sometimes then i would have to have maybe an injection that would give me 6 months of pain free and but that, that then you could only get 2 of those in in a space of time there was no real explaining anything properly um, the consultant that i was sent to after i was diagnosed, went to to diagnose me um, in my early 20s, she did seem to know and say that uh, I don't wait for anything if I want to have children, but I probably won't be able to have them. Now, I was very, I was both very, very lucky and very, very unlucky because I had all the symptoms in a very severe form and I, I managed to have two children. Um two very healthy children, one being a daughter who now looks like she might have it, she suffers very badly. And the consultant that I went to in Cork, I'm had a. I'm 48 now. And five years ago when I was 43, I had 30 years of endometriosis and constant pain at that stage it never left me. It was constant pain management. And um, then I went, I was almost suicidal come christmas and i rang the consultant in cork and just said look i can't do this anymore and she booked me in i had the uh, his full hysterectomy in january <coughs> and thankfully it has it worked 100% i was very lucky with that as well uh, so i i have my health back i have my fitness back i have sport i've worked As hard as I worked to fight against it, I have worked as hard now to get a life back and a a new identity and a new feeling and a new gusto for life. Um, And listening to those women is just horrendous. But we have another generation coming up under us who I cannot bear to think that my daughter would go through a percentage of the pain that I went through. And I think with all the stuff that's going on with about this at the moment and lifeline is doing a great job but something actually has to be put in place so that uh, younger girls can go and say this is happening they're being believed and something is being done whereas with my daughter i have the experience of dealing with doctors and consultants And I know what to look out for and what not to look out for and what not to believe and how to push and when to push. And she has that benefit of me, but not everybody has that. And I'm not afraid to push now. Uh, And I never ring in on these shows and here I am bawling, but uh, that's it. Um, Patricia. That's it
1: that was so thank you. St- thank you Patricia that was so so powerful and and obviously very hard very hard to do and Rachel Emmis is listening Rachel Patricia mentioned that um she's been suffering for 30 years that can't be said of you because you're only 28 but when did you begin to have serious problems and and set you on this journey
7: so i got my first period when i was 10 and from the very first period I've had. So, I'm 28 now. It's been 18 years of this. Um, but yeah, I started very early. And for some people, you know, it can develop as they get older. But for me, it was from the very, very beginning. When I turned 10, like, I was missing primary school every mm-hmm. month because the pain was, was that bad for me that I, I couldn't go into to primary school, um, which is... And at that age as well, like, you know, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, and I ended up being put on the pill at the age of 11 um, okay. to try and, you know, help with the symptoms. So, yeah, it, it hasn't been 30 years, but it, it's been um, most of the part of my life that I can remember. I can't remember, how like, not having this pain.
1: And what, when, when you, you say you're on the pill when you were 11, but when you start going to medics about the pain, what were you, what, were you, what did they diagnose?
7: I wasn't diagnosed with anything until this year, until I was 27. Wow. So from the age of 10, up until I had just been told, it's just bad periods, it's just part of being a woman. Unfortunately, that's just part of it. You know, as you go get older, it might get better. As mm-hmm. other people have mentioned, I have been told at 13 or 14, like, when you have a baby, this, this pain will go away. You won't yeah. have it anymore. Um, so I had never been given an official diagnosis. I'd never even been referred to a gynecologist. I was just cycled through multiple different pill options um, for years. Like, they start with, like, a combined pill, and then I was changed to a progesterone only pill and then trying the like the depot injection shot and there was just that was the only kind of options I was given and no one ever mentioned to me and for a long time Mm -hmm. I just assumed this was just a bad period pain and I was just unlucky or, or maybe I just couldn't deal with it as well as other people that I knew could deal with it so Yeah, I found it really difficult, like no one... I didn't hear of endometriosis until I was 21 or 22 years of age. And I only got my first referral to a gynecologist when I was 25.
1: And when when were you actually diagnosed?
7: This year, January 2022. So I was almost 28. So nearly 18 years after I first um, started with symptoms and... it it took me that long to be able to get a diagnosis.
1: And, um, Rachel, look, it's 18 years, okay, I'm going back through. wait, again, you were so young, was a hysterectomy ever suggested, which seemed to be a common, a common solution offered?
7: Not for me. Sorry, Um,
1: a a common, alleged solution offered.
7: Yeah, it, I kind of had the opposite side of it, so, when I, went to a gynecologist and they had mentioned um, endometriosis and they put me in for a surgery to potentially diagnose it and I had two surgeries here with two different gynecologists and okay. they both told me, you definitely don't have endometriosis, there's nothing wrong with you, you just have bad period pains and you should count yourself lucky that you don't have a chronic pain condition. That's what I had been told. Um even though, so, I, so, I, they did,
1: so they didn't believe you that you didn't have a chronic pain condition?
7: No, and even though I, I sat in front of one of them in their office and burst into tears and said, yeah. this pain is so debilitating and impacts so many areas of my life that there are times where I would rather not be here yeah. than have to deal with this pain. And he literally was just like, come back and see me in three months. We'll see how this pill goes. And there was just no understanding with it at all. So
1: so again, this line, you were regarded as an unreliable witness to your own suffering in your own body.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I felt, I would come out of those appointments feeling like I was crazy, that there must be something wrong with me because I felt, you know, these are gynecologists who are supposed to be, you know, very well trained and well educated Mm. and, if they're telling me there's nothing wrong with me, then maybe it is all in my head. Maybe this is just something that I can't deal with well. Even though, like so many other people have said, I would pass out from the pain. I would be sick from the pain. I missed school or college and work. Like as I got older, would have to miss that every month. I was hospitalized multiple times, like A and E, because I physically could not walk due to the pain. Okay. And coming out with those appointments, I was able to. Rationalise it down and go. Well, no, they told me it was it was okay, so it must just be.
1: They, they, you, know. you were told that, you, that that you don't know what chronic pain is like.
7: Yeah, even though I was able to sit in front of them, and I actually yeah. had, I heard other people saying that I had done similar. I had printed out like a three month calendar, and I marked off yeah. every single yeah. day that I was in pain, yeah. and I showed them this is it. every single day that I have been in so much pain in the last three months. I haven't been able to get out of bed and have been taken at the time I was on 27 tablets a day to help manage the pain a mix of anti-inflammatories opiates, and pain to help or tablets to help reduce the bleeding and muscle relaxants and at the height like 27 tablets a day every
1: day for a period of three months where I could not get out okay. of bed. And did you, did, be told
7: did you ever, that, did, sorry,
1: to be told, sorry, I shouldn't be. No, it's okay. To be told that you're on, you're on more, a tablet more than once an hour, every single day, mm-hmm. and still they're telling you, you don't know what chronic pain is like, wait and you Yeah. Now, did yeah, you, it did, was, did you ever ask for a hysterectomy?
7: I did. Or, that, so or
1: suggested, sorry.
7: Yeah, so I know that for a lot of people, you know, hysterectomy, and yeah. for some people a hysterectomy will help with endometriosis and for some people it doesn't. So my take was, okay, if you're telling me I definitely don't have endometriosis, then can I have a hysterectomy? Because I have tried every version of the pill, we've done all that. And I'm, so at the time when I asked for it, I was 27 mm-hmm. and I was initially told that I was too young and they wouldn't consider it because I was so young. And I asked, okay, what age would I have to be before you would consider it? And he said that there are other factors to consider. Now, I'm I'm gay and I'm married and my wife was with me there at the appointment. And he said that the other factors he had to consider was that my sexual orientation might change. I might meet a man and he might want to have children. What?
1: Yeah. What year was this?
7: This was last year. This was November
1: 2021. That a medic said to you... Mm-hmm. And y- your your partner is... Uh, you're gay, as you say. Your partner's um. That a medic said to you, don't have a hysterectomy because your sexual orientation might change.
7: Yeah. And that I would... might divorce my wife and meet a man and that he might want to have children. Not even to ask me... If I wanted to have children, but specifically yeah. that I might meet a man who might want to have children, and that's why he wouldn't consider a hysterectomy as an option for me.
1: But, but and as you say, you were crying with the pain at one stage. Mm-hmm. Well, how did yeah. you react to that lunacy? Um,
7: I thought very angry about that. Yeah. Um, at, at the beginning, like in in the initial appointment, I was just completely shocked. It took me completely by surprise. I didn't expect that as a response I left the appointment in tears and then I had spoken to a couple of other Irish women who had been in similar situations and they had suggested to me about um, um, an excision specialist in London so I made the decision then like not even a month later in December 2021 then I met with the endometriosis specialist but you have to
1: pay for
3: that
7: it in, so I met with him in December and he scheduled me for the surgery in January of 2022, so this year. And okay. in total, um, between the two appointments to see him, the surgery and everything that is involved in that, it cost about 10 grand. Wow. Which I didn't have. Yeah. I have to borrow. Yeah. But
1: and how, after how,
7: that, yeah. the surgery then got me my diagnosis within... A, as soon as I woke up from the surgery, the first question I asked the nurse in the recovery room was, do I have it? And she said yes. And
1: And how are you you, now, Rachel?
7: So the first month or two after the surgery was quite difficult because um, it it had been so bad that my my left ovary was completely adhered to my womb with endometriosis lesions. It was completely stuck and So the recovery, and as other people have mentioned, it's a completely different type of recovery um, when you have excision surgery. And the first two months afterwards was definitely rough. Um, But as a kind of additional treatment, I'm currently four months into a six-month-induced menopause to basically kind of, you know, try and get rid of as much of the endometriosis as possible and reduce any chances of it. Coming back, Uh, so in the last four to five months since I started this, my life is completely different. Okay, I haven't had to take any time off of work. Brilliant. I haven't had to cancel plans with family or friends last minute because I can't walk. My I'm on nowhere near, I don't even take any painkillers like on a daily basis anymore. Where previously I've been on twenty seven a day.
1: Okay, that's that's well, that's another journey that that seems to reach the same positive conclusion but it's only after surgery and it's only after surgery a particular type of surgery excision surgery mm-hmm. which is not carried out it seems in this country Rachel uh, kind regards to you and your wife and indeed uh, for the for the future good health and happiness and uh, if you decide to have a family good health and happiness to to the family as well thanks indeed that's Rachel Emmis joe at rt.ie talk to joe on 0818
0: 715 815 joe Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815.
8: I just want to add my testimony to the courageous story shared by others. I travelled to the UK at my own expense for excision surgery, in simple terms, where the disease is cut away as opposed to burning. Endo can be a very lonely road, and there's no public discourse for those not going through it or directly witnessing how it can ravage a person. Going through security in Heathrow with four dressed wounds was humiliating and infuriating knowing the Irish state does not deal with women's health. The disease is under researched, under resourced, and women are left literally in some cases to fight for their survival. I'm a member of global forums where women have paid with their lives due to hopelessness or complications from surgery due to lack of urgency in handling their post operative complaints. Women have lost kidneys due to infiltration by endo. I've had male doctors tell me it can't be that painful. The first step is simple: listen to women the first time.
1: Yeah, the same message coming through again, and again, and again. Leona, good afternoon.
8: Hi
9: Joe.
1: You said mm-hmm. you you have got to got to hear from me, but you say you used to be ashamed to tell people that you had endo. Yeah,
9: um, when I first, because see, I I had it from when I like started my periods, um, and yeah. I was in a lot of pain for a long time. Um, I was missing a lot of school. And um, my mom knew there was something wrong, so she kept bringing me to the doctors. And same thing as sort of everyone else seems to be saying, is that uh, the doctors just didn't really know. They were like, oh, maybe it's IBS is what they first said. Yeah, the so irritable
1: medication. bowel comes up again yeah. and again and again.
9: Yeah. And then I was put on the pill when I was 15 because um, I was bleeding a lot. Like, I'd go months, Mm-hmm. which was bleeding and um, so they put me on the pill but that still didn't help I was still like I was vomiting I was getting kidney infections I was on painting I was just in like unbelievable pain yeah. um, and then I think it was I was 16 um, and I went to the doctor and she was like look they start saying they were going to refer me to a psychologist or to some psychiatry because they said it was in my head um, and the only person that really believed me was my mom my mom was like no I can see the pain she's in this is not in her head And then I um, eventually found a doctor that said they thought it might be endometriosis. So when I went to the hospital, I got the uh, laparoscopy done, the surgery, and I was told it was stage two endometriosis. And I was 17, so I didn't really know what it was. I didn't understand. So for a good while, I didn't really tell anyone about it. I didn't really. I just used to get the really bad pains and have people think that I just couldn't handle the pain and that sort of thing. But uh, it was, yeah, hard. N- nowadays, it's different. I tell anyone what it is. Cause, okay. uh,
3: like,
9: uh, You know, people just don't seem to know what it is. When you when you say what it is, they're just like, oh, I never heard of that. And a lot of women as well that don't know. And there's people that probably have it and don't even realize.
1: You've had two surgeries, uh, but it still comes
3: back.
9: Yeah. So I had that one when I was 17. Um, I had some relief after it for a while, I'd say, but maybe two years. Yeah. Then it started again, and then when I was 21, I had another surgery, and then um, after that surgery, again, I had a bit of relief, mm. but it started coming back. I went, um, they kept telling me, obviously, that, uh, the, like what other girls have said, um, that if I have a baby, that it would um, yeah. help help it. Um, I was in a relationship from when I was 18, and I actually just got married a few months ago. Um okay but uh, we did start trying um, three years ago and obviously unsuccessfully. Um, we still haven't... Uh, uh, mm. I still haven't got pregnant, but um, the uh, three years that I haven't been on the pill have been torture as well. Like, I always had pain with the pill, but now it's yeah. like, 100 times worse. Like, every day is a struggle. <laughs> um, I'm taking painkillers nearly all the time and I need stuff for, like, my bells as well because, it, it, like, it affects that as well. Yeah. Um, and it's just very, very painful. It's, it's not an easy thing to, to have to deal with every day.
1: And as you've said, and it affects every aspect of your life. Um, it really
3: does.
1: And can yeah, you? Yeah, you spoke some moving there about trying to conceive. Can you get any help?
9: Um, I've been going in and out of the hospital and um, getting checkups and scans and everything, and they just keep telling me that like the only thing I can do is IVF. Um, Mm-hmm. They keep wanting me to go on the back on the pill. And obviously, that is the opposite of what I want. Like, I yeah. want a, a yeah. baby. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think the answer for endometriosis in Ireland is just to put us on the pill. <laughs> um, which, you know, the pill causes all sorts of things too. Like, you know, it can really like mess with your hormones. It can make yeah. you feel like really, like, it d- can not agree with a lot of people as well. Um I just there was two months ago I was told I need to go on it for at least three months just to give my body a break and like it's just not agreeing with me at all like I'm mm-hmm. wrecked tired every day I just can't even stay awake and it's making me really sick and I'm still getting very bad pains it hasn't helped mm-hmm. me at all really to be honest and it's just yeah it's just a never-ending cycle really and uh they just tell me that uh for that we need IVF but um obviously IVF is a very expensive very thing
3: expensive,
9: um yeah. i know there's a new thing coming out now now i don't know yeah. much about it yet or what's happening with it but um well yeah, ireland well
1: ireland is the only uh, western country that doesn't assist financially the state doesn't assist financially uh, doesn't. with ivf but apparently that's due to change within the next 12 months are you are you are you very cast down leona
9: yeah i'm just sort of fed up at this stage yeah. i just feel like it's Like, I'm only 26, and I'm listening to stories from women that are, like, in their 50s and 40s, and nearly all of them have had to get their womb removed, like, and it's just, it scares me, because, like, I want to have kids so badly, me and my husband, and it's just, like, we're trying so hard, and then this thing, just every day, I'm in pain, and it's just, like, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. Uh, yeah, I just wish there was something that yeah. could be done, something more, and that more, like especially doctors should know more about it because there's a lot of them that don't. Like yeah. I, growing up, it took a long time for people to realize like that that's what it was, even to think what it was.
3: But yeah. well,
1: please, Leon, stay listening, and we're going to be putting up on our website all the different contacts for people, because um, it seems to me that women got more information from other women about endo than from anyone else, more reliable information.
3: Yeah,
9: definitely. Yeah. Like the, the last lady that was on there said about the uh, going to the UK and all, like I didn't actually know that that was a possibility yeah. um, that you can do that. I'm sure it's probably expensive but uh, yeah. just that there is something else because well, at this should... point it's see their surgeries here is the ablation which I've had done twice yeah. and I was told that they can't do it again because it's not good but yeah. The other option is to just live with
3: the pain.
1: Well, there's other options as well. But it, the other thing, as well, it should be it sh- should be covered on the, the as cross border treatment fund. Other other uh, illnesses and diseases are. Okay, Leona, thanks indeed. I really appreciate that, Leona.
3: Thank you. Mind you. Bye bye. Yeah.
0: Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe! Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Fergus Sweeney produce Brandon Donahue's next. 0818-715-815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.